0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some
1: of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru John Spear, risk management, folks. Newsflash: This isn't going away. This is a topic that that is par for the course in the medical device industry. Certainly, the the tricks and the challenges are figuring out what all this means and how to navigate and capture and document. And when and what to do from that perspective. A few days ago, uh, there was some new guidance documents. I'll, I'll use uh, air quotes around the word new, but the, this is about uh, uncertainty consideration of uncertainty in making benefit-risk determinations. And I thought, who better to talk about new FDA guidances, especially on the topic of risk management, than Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast.
0: Thank you, John. As always, as I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience. All right. So like I said,
1: I, I use air quotes around new, but let's talk a little bit about that. So uh, maybe give the folks a, a little bit of a, an overview and the purpose of these two new guidance documents from FDA.
0: So it's a great uh, Topic, John, and as you alluded to, and as I'm sure everybody in our our audience well knows, uh, risk or uncertainty, whatever you want to call it, has always been included in all product reviews of medical devices, of drugs, of you name it. The purpose of these two guidances that we're talking about today is to simply try to provide a little more transparency, a little more consistency, a little more, uh, objectivity to that whole process. So, The two guidances that came out just last month were, um, and we can put links on the website, consideration of uncertainty in making benefit-risk determinations in medical device pre-market approvals, de novo classifications, and humanitarian device exemptions. And then the second related guidance that came out is titled, factors to consider when making benefit-risk determinations in medical device pre-approval and de novo classifications. On a personal note, John, I'm not sure why I understand why FDA separated these into two separate guidances. I think they could easily have be been um, combined. But most importantly for our, audience, for our audience, I don't think that our audience should look at one or the other of these guidances individually. I think they really need to be looked at collectively. Um, and not just these two particular guidances, because this is uh, a general kind of approach to uncertainty or risk. But you have to combine this with your with your product specific guidances. So if you're developing an in vitro diagnostic or a prosthetic knee or something like that, you have to take all of the, the guidance into account, not just these two particular ones. Does that make sense, John? Yeah, it
1: does. You know, and, and it seems to be, I mean, I don't know that this is true per se, but it just seems to be that, that this is kind of continuing a trend of before, like that these were always separated as separate items. But yeah, I, I'm not really sure either because I the the little bit that I reviewed both of these guides is there's not like something that's dramatically different in one versus the other. Would you agree?
0: Well let me point out just just briefly for the benefit of our audience what some of the differences are between the two. Starting with the guidance called consideration of uncertainty in making benefit risk determinations. Basically what this guidance talks about is when, under what circumstances can we accept a greater risk? Uh, in a product submission for a PMA or an HD or a de novo. Um, And we can talk about some specific examples in a moment. And one of the things that I find most interesting about this particular guidance, John, is that there's a fair amount of discussion in this guidance related to the Breakthrough Designation Program or BDP devices, which actually is not uh, even mentioned in the title of the guidance. And so, as as you know, and as we've talked about before, I do a tremendous amount of work with BDP devices. So I think um, it's kind of interesting that, uh, and again, we'll talk about some examples, but it's not mentioned in the title of this particular guidance they just okay. mentioned product approvals de novo, uh, PMAs de novos and HDs. Hmm. and the second guidance that we're talking about factors to consider when m- making benefit risk determinations they have two interesting sections of the guidance that I think are significant not the guidance that itself but two of the appendices the first appendix that I appendix that I wanted to just point out for our audience john is uh, titled the intersection of this guidance with ISO 14971. And this is, you know, 14971 is something that you and I are very familiar with. It's something yeah. we've talked about many times. And maybe if our audience is interested, we'll take a deeper dive in, in that particular topic of how this guidance and FDA's approach to uncertainty and risk, uh, is either in synchronous or, uh, not in synchronous with 14971. The other thing that uh, that I found interesting about this particular guidance in another appendix, and this is perhaps the most significant new addition to this guidance, is FDA provides a worksheet for the benefit-risk assessment. It's actually it's a nine-page worksheet. Um, I know, John, you and I are very familiar with, and we've talked about the refuse to accept or RTA uh, Mm -hmm. guidance that originally came out for the 510K. Now there's an RTA for the PMA as well as the de novo. Well, this is kind of along those lines. As tempted as I am, I'm not going to give a critique of that worksheet. I do think that it's it's a good start, but it's drastically oversimplified. But again, for those in the audience that are relatively new, to this game, I think it's an important worksheet to take a look at because it's not your traditional approach to risk benefit or benefit risk assessment. It's a it's a little more of a analytic approach, if that makes sense.
1: It does, and and folks, uh, as Mike alluded to a few moments ago, yes, we will provide. Links to both of these guidances in the text that accompanies the uh, podcast audio. I, I am intrigued by that by that worksheet only because I think on the topic of benefit risk, it can be a little bit nebulous and a little bit confusing. You know, and, and frankly, I, I get asked well, just about every week from uh, you know a customer or somebody that's consuming Greenlight Guru content, you know, if there are templates that are available. So. Uh, It sounds like, folks, there might be something, at least as an outline, and to Mike's point, don't uh, assume that this is uh, holistic and comprehensive, but certainly something to trigger your thought process and a good starting point. So, um, yeah, so take a look at that. Um, Mike, I think it's curious to me that these guidances talk about PMAs, they talk about de novos, they talk about HDEs, but there's nothing mentioned about 510K. Why not? Why not?
0: It's a great question, John, and the reason why it's an important question is because, as as we all know, the 510K is the workhorse of the medical device industry. So why is this not mentioned? Well, simply put, risk for a 510K device in general should be much better understood then risk for a de novo device, which which is a device where there is no predicate, there is nothing similar, uh, and similarly for a PMA or an HDE, which are for, for class three, for the highest risk kinds of devices. So although the general principles of uncertainty and risk certainly apply to 510k devices, um, simply put, You should know in advance of your clearance, in advance of putting your device on the market under the 510K, you should have a very good idea of many, if not most, of the risks by looking at the predicates. In other words, if you have predicates that are on the market that use very similar technologies that are indicated for very similar things, it stands to reason, it's common sense that many, if not most, or maybe even all of the risks are going to be similar or the same and so that's the primary reason why i think the 510k is is not specifically called out here would you agree with that john
1: Yeah, i think it makes sense i mean you know at least from a uh, high level philosophical standpoint and at the st- same time uh you know i am on my second read through of these guidances um you know i'm familiar with the the uh, initial versions that came out. i think it was sometime last year um, I think there's still good content. It's still good thought-provoking uh, information that's contained in those, regardless of the type of device that that or the classification of my device. So I think even if I had a five ten k, it still might be a good guidance document for me to consult and to review. Uh, again, we're not going to necessarily say that that these are prescriptive, and and you know, of course, uh, you and I both talk a lot about. Uh, taking things blindly from a regulatory perspective, and I don't know if we'll get into that today, but but nonetheless, I think it is a good resource to consult, even if I do have a five ten k device.
0: Oh, John, I, I could not agree more, and I apologize if I somehow no, gave I, an I
1: impression think, otherwise. I don't think you um, get that impression.
0: But um, let me illustrate this way, and I'll just use a, a quick five ten k versus de novo kind of a metaphor. So risk. So in a five ten k risk is, I don't want to say it's a trivial thing, but if you're successful establishing substantial equivalence and if you're successful, you know, uh, making the whole predicate argument, then you really don't have to say much about risk, certainly when it comes to the classification, because as you know, John, the, the classification of your 510k device, most of the time defaults to the classification of the predicate. So, If you're successful with the substantial equivalence argument, if your predicate is class two, your device is class two. You really don't have to make any stronger of an argument than that. On the flip side, when it comes to the de novo, remember, there is no predicate for the de novo. The de novo is supposed to be for something that's truly new or novel. So there is no default classification for the risk. So you're starting out with a blank slate. And you have to argue that my device is class three, and here's why, or class two, and here's why, or class one, and here's why. So in that sense, John, the risk argument or the uncertainty argument, whatever you want to call it, is much more important for a Zenovo than it is for a 510k. All
1: right. That that actually helps, and it kind of leads to a next thought or area that, that um, might be worth diving a little bit deeper, because I think... I, you know and, and practically speaking when I uh, you know do some sort of risk assessment, my personal preference is to try to to take a f- first um, pass from a risk I, I want to understand where my gotchas are where my unknowns are or where my uncertainty is uh, from a risk perspective and and I typically would like to do this I'll say very early in the design and development process mostly because that I use that as a guide um, to you know, where I should be focusing and diving in a little bit deeper and exploring, you know, doing more from a discovery and from a development and maybe from a testing standpoint to to turn that uncertainty into, uh, we'll say, less uncertainty. Um, so I guess, you know, it might be good to think about, you know, um, sort of the flow, but but also, you know, when we talk about benefit-risk determinations, that is implying, at least in my knowledge and, and understanding of, of how I've applied risk historically, that that means that there's some high risk item that at, in some way, shape, or form we're, we're saying is acceptable and we're supporting it with some sort of evidence to to show that the benefits outweigh the risk. But maybe talk a little bit about when is high risk or higher risk acceptable?
0: So again, it's a great question, John. And I'll start out with the what the guidance says. I think what the guidance says in this regard is a statement of the obvious. They say that higher risk is acceptable in PMA devices and especially in breakthrough designation BDP PMA devices. Once again, PMAs are class 3 these are by definition the highest risk devices so this is exactly why i say it's a statement of the obvious the other situation that the guidance says that a higher risk is acceptable is in when you're dealing with small patient populations for example the humanitarian device exemption or the hde which for those in the audience who are not familiar uh, and i know we've done discussions on the hde in the past is similar to the orphan drug program for, uh, for drugs. Uh, HDEs are for class three, so still high risk medical devices, but they're intended for a small patient population. How small A small? Less than 8,000 patients per year and the idea is that you know there are there are no incentives certainly not financial incentives for companies to develop devices like this we talked about this recently in our pediatric device discussion if you remember john um but the hde is also a situation where higher risk is acceptable but to me you know this is common sense this is this is logic that i've been apply, uh, applying for now for for almost 30 years of of playing in this business simply put if the patient is in imminent demise, in other words, if they're going to die and if they're going to die sooner rather than later, if they're going to die in a in sort of a painful way and sort of uh, in, in, and if they have a short duration from diagnosis to death, my favorite example is pancreatic cancer and there are few if any that alternative uh, alternatives that the patient has then obviously we are able to uh, ex- to To accept a very high degree of risk, or alternatively, a less safe medical device. On the other hand, if you're going after an indication that is not fatal, that uh, that maybe is just an inconvenience. Or let's take an extreme example, John. Let's say a cosmetic indication. Let's say you're working on a medical device for the removal of tattoos, or for uh, you know, for, for, for hair growth, or something like that. That's clearly a situation where we have to set the bar for risk much lower. Right. So simply put, the the risk, you know, the the amount of acceptable risk, whether it's high or low, um, is really going to be contingent on a lot of things, not the least of which is the is the clinical situation. I'm not sure if I'm a good doing a good job of explaining what that means, John, but maybe you can do it better for our audience.
1: Well I was I was uh distracted a little bit about hair growth devices. I didn't, I didn't <laughs> Folks, I don't have any hair uh, at least not on the top of my head, if, if you've never seen my picture. But anyway, yeah, I think so. You know, and the pancreatic cancer is maybe a, a good one example uh, to, to maybe uh, elaborate on a little bit. I mean, to your point, if, if my device is targeting that specific disease and the alternative is, you know, the patient doesn't get my product, they're going to die. Um, it's pretty easy, I think, to say, you know, well, the benefits of this product outweigh the risk because without the device, the patient is, is uh, likely going to, to have uh, dire consequences. With my device, there's a hope, you know, and, and I mean, is it really that simple, though, in, in trying to, to make that benefit-risk determination?
0: Well, it's a good question, John. On one hand, it's pretty simple. On the other hand, you know, it's very complicated, the devils and the details. So let me use that pancreatic cancer metaphor uh, a little bit further, because I do think this is something that I see a lot of people in my professional practice get confused about. So if we're bringing a, a, a product onto the market, a medical device, or for that matter, a drug, it really doesn't matter, onto the market for an indication like pancreatic cancer, in many ways, it's much easier, certainly in terms of risk, because Pancreatic cancer is perhaps the worst form of cancer one could have, not like any form of cancer is good, but pancreatic cancer is is about the worst. Why? Because... It's got a very short duration from diagnosis to death. Um, there are really no uh, good alternative treatments, no other uh, options for the patient. And it's a, it's a tremendously painful way to, to die. So because of all of those reasons, as I said, the patient is an eminent demise, no alternatives exist. We're able to get that product onto the market and set the bar for risk much higher or the the bar for safety much lo- lower. Let's contrast that with, let's say we're coming out with a medical device for a drug for allergies, right? That's very different because allergies, you know, most people, um, unless you're extremely uh, um, anaphylactic, you're not going to you know, die of an allergy. And there are already are a litany of other options out there for uh, people with allergies. We might argue that our particular product is better than what exists. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but there's already a litany of other options. So because yeah. of that, we should set the bar lower for risk as opposed to the pancreatic cancer example that I just mentioned a moment ago. And speaking of, okay. of uh, of, of risk in categorizing this uncertainty, John, one of the things that FDA also introduced in this new guidance is they set up uh, some criteria, uh, some categories of uncertainty. They're calling them low, medium, and high. Interestingly enough, they do not define what those categories mean—low, medium, or high. That's left up to the manufacturer, which I would argue is a good thing. Kind of like the classification system for software. Yeah. Um, you know, it's basically up to the the um, manufacturer to 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 determine that and then to sell it to the FDA. But the reason why, when I when I first saw that in the guidance, John, I wasn't sure if this is a good thing is because now we're creating yet another scale, another metric when we talk about uncertainty or risk. We've already got the medical device classification system, class one, class two, class three. We got the alternative significant risk versus non-significant risk device. We've got the software classification system, which also deals with risk. So risk is a complicated topic, John, as you and your audience. Well, I'm a subject matter expert for FDA on risk, yeah. but it seems like we're making it even more complicated by going, you know, adding more and more ways to, to, to talk about it. And, oh, for um, sure. So anyway, hopefully that helps.
1: It, it does. Folks, I'm, I want to remind you, I'm talking with Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. We're talking about Couple of new guidances that came out recently from FDA on consideration of uncertainty and making benefit-risk determinations, and you know, risk. And to that last point that Mike was making um, about this uh, conjecture that your risk is either low, medium, or high, it is. Um, it is something that I think a lot of companies do struggle with as far as how to define you know their approach to risk. You know, but it is the company's responsibility and. And you know that's one of the things that we do at Greenlight Guru is we we help companies to define their risk management paradigm, what's important to them, and we try to make it as smooth and simple as you, we possibly can, considering all the different nuances that uh, risk. You know, depending on what kind of product you have, if it's got software, if it's a de novo, and so on and so forth. You know, we try to make this as simple as possible in the Greenlight Guru EQMS platform. Of course, there's more in that platform, managing design controls, integrating your risk to the design and development process, incorporating designer views, as well as all the post-market needs as far as managing complaints and customer feedback and non-conformances and, and tying that back into the overall quality management scheme that you have in place. That's important as well. So if you're interested in learning more about Greenlight Guru and the... EQMS software platform that is designed specifically for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals, I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. All right. So that last point you made is, is um, you know, and, and not to complicate things, but there's also, you know, for your... Uh, in a 14971 uh, world, uh, and, we're, and we're, to your point, we're not going to dive into that standard today. Uh, definitely a, a, a deeper topic for a deeper conversation, separate conversation. But you know, there are also some paradigms that are presented from a risk standpoint in that standard. So it might be some other things. But um, I guess about this, these guidances. I mean, is this an example of you know yet another guidance that you know it's good to. Kind of review? I mean, is there something that's really really important in this guidance that we should be paying attention to?
0: Well, let me just tick through a few other things that uh, I think are uh, important, or at least our uh, our audience should be aware of in these guidances. Uh, First, FDA actually, and I haven't seen this in similar guidances before, they uh, have some discussion in there about the company taking into account the patient's perspective. Of uncertainty, if this is available, what is, uh, what is, you know, what does the patient feel about the uncertainty or the risk here? This is something that usually medical device companies have not taken into account, at least not commonly. That is usually less the discussion of the. The physician and of, of the patient. So I think it's a good thing that FDA is encouraging companies to start to take into account the patient's perspective. Another thing that FDA um, is reminding people to take into account uh, in determining the, the level of uncertainty is the degree of need of the product. And I don't mean in a marketing sense but I mean in a clinical sense. In other words, if you're working in an area like a de novo, for example, where there is an unmet clinical need, in other words, where there aren't not other alternatives um, that are available to the patient, then that obviously is going to greatly impact our level of uncertainty that we're willing to accept or not accept. This is, um, as we've talked about before, John, a requirement, to take into account in a PMA, but it is not a requirement in the five ten k or the de novo, at least not yet. It's what FDA calls alternative practices and procedures, or using my three bucket three bucket approach to, to risk, which I've done a webinar for uh, for Greenlight on in the past. It's what I call the probability of harm if I do not use my medical device, if I use a different medical device, if I have a surgical procedure, if I use a drug, or maybe if I don't do anything at all. So the degree of of need, specifically an unmet clinical need, is important. Another thing that they bring up in the guidance is the degree of clinical evidence. Um, And when we can collect that clinical evidence, in other words, how much clinical data do we need uh, pre-market? Versus can we collect clinical data post-market? Interestingly enough, John, the title of one of these two, actually of both of these guidances, they focus on pre-market, but they include a discussion of the importance of timely post-market data collection. And as a matter of fact, and I found this very interesting, John, FDA offers as a reminder in one of the guidances, and I quote, FDA has the authority to withdraw the approval of a PMA if conditions of approval, including the collection of post-market data, are not met, close quote. That's a requirement that's been around for, or a power of FDA that's been around for a very long time. Regrettably, they don't exercise it very often. I think you and I have talked about this before as well. But interestingly enough, John, we do not have a similar requirement or a similar um, FDA action for 510Ks and de novos. Perhaps we we should. And along the topic of post-market surveillance, just a a prequel for our audience, John, it turns out that next month, uh, on October 30th, I'm going to be doing my next Greenlight webinar on post-market surveillance. So this is a topic that we'll get into uh, in in much more detail. But specifically, when it it comes to uh, uncertainty, Simply put, the greater uncertainty you have, the more reliant you're going to be on pre-market clinical data. On the other hand, the less uncertainty that you have, the more you can push the um, collection of clinical data post-market. So again, to me, John, that's just simple common sense. Yeah. And the last two general things that i would put in the category of what else is important in these guidances is again and again there's nothing new here there's nothing unique in this particular guidance but fda reminds us that we can mitigate uncertainty in other ways for example via labeling Although, as, as we've talked about before, mm-hmm. labeling, according to ISO, should not be your primary risk mitigation. You should do everything that you can via design and training and uh, everything else first. Labeling should be your mitigation of last resort. And finally, is the degree of probable benefit. Uh, this is referring to the humanitarian device exemption or HDE. Um, remember, John, in the HDE world, which is a, which is for class three devices, there is no requirement to show that an HDE device is effective. You simply have to show probable benefit. Simply put, probable benefit means efficacy at a lower statistical power. Yeah. But what that means here is that the uncertainty associated with that um, can be, can be, I don't want to say overlooked, but it can be diminished a little bit because we want these patients to have early access to the device. So that's sort of a quick run through of what I thought were some of the more important um, aspects that were brought up in these uh, in these guidances. FDA in both of these guidances does do a good job of providing a number of examples, hypothetical examples. Um, it kind of reminds me of the way I teach um, regulatory f- for my graduate students. I use the case study approach. So FDA is starting to do this a little bit more as well, perhaps because uh Many of my former graduate students are now working in the FDA. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) So, so yeah, so
1: your your influence (laughs) has reached uh, additional generations of regulatory professionals. That's awesome. Well, let's hope so. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and for those that are interested, uh, you know, I mentioned my webinar coming up on post-market surveillance. FDA also has a webinar coming up on October. Um, uh, oh, when is it? Uh, October sixteenth, um, talking specifically about these particular guidances. And I would encourage your audience to check that out. Although, yeah, to be honest, John, I, I find most of the FDA's webinars to be. Not very useful because all they are really is reading to you what the guidance says. Um, yeah. and when I do webinars, I try to go beyond that.
1: Yeah, agreed. Uh, so, folks, you can you can read these for yourself. Uh, we'll we'll include those links. Um, you know, the, as you describe those sort of those important uh, takeaways. I, there's a lot of good nuggets there. Um, the the uh, patient uncertainty left me scratching my head a little bit. You know, again, we're not solving uh, the ch- challenges of all of those nuances today, but but that seems like that would be a really challenging item to to try to corroborate or address in some sort of a j- objective way. But I don't know if you have any thoughts about that specifically. If not, we'll we'll move uh, to the last part of of our conversation today
0: well it's 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 challenging and even in the guidance when it comes to um w- w- when it comes to the to the patient's perspective uh fda points out if this is available um what we do with that information how we incorporate that information uh you know that's up to the manufacturer but at least it's giving people something to think about
1: all right so it's it's pretty deep uh, i think uh but at the same time there's a lot there so I do encourage folks to, to uh, review these, uh, regardless of device classification, regardless if you're pursuing you know, FDA or outside U.S. markets, uh, still good information that's here. So um, any other takeaways that are important as we wrap up the conversation today on uncertainty and making benefit risk determinations?
0: Well, the last Uh, point that I would just mention as an observation is I found in this particular guidance a very rare instance incidents and perhaps this is the beginning of a trend I don't know but I've seen this in very very few guidances in the past where FDA has devoted a substantial portion to the of the guidance to discussing the purpose and specifically on one hand they're emphasizing uh, you know this 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 pathway, this process to as we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, John, to add more transparency uh, to consistency uh, objectivity to this to this uncertainty process, but on the other hand, they point out that they want to have a flexible and tailored approach in reviewing each device uh, sort of you know by itself and considering. Um, and FDA uses one of my favorite uh, lawyer phrases, the totality of the evidence. And the reason why I'm pointing this out, John, is because it does sort of present a bit of a paradox. So on one hand, we're trying to create a pathway so that people can understand, have some predictability. But nice. on the other hand, we're trying to take this tailored approach. It's an interesting Mm, balance between those. And listen, I'll, you know, as, as some of you in your audience know, I am not a fan of the cookie cutter approach. Yeah, medical device I am. To development or, I'm not either. To regulation. Yeah, and I think, you know, every medical device, regardless of what it is, should be considered on its own uh, merits, you know, yeah. including the, the uncertainty. But anyway, that's the last thing that I thought I would point out. What did, yeah. what did you think was uh, important for our audience to remember today, John?
1: Well, I, th- I think the important thing for me is maybe a little bit higher level, but, you know, and, and I kind of led the conversation off with this, risk is something that is um, it's going to be more and more and more important for a litany of reasons, uh, you know, not the least of which you're making a medical device that's using patients uh, to uh, cure and and address uh, clinical modalities in some way, shape, or form. So bear that in mind. There is risk that's there. There's always risk that's involved with your medical device, uh, regardless of whatever controls you put in place or whatever mitigations uh, you implement. There still will be risk. So we have to get comfortable with this topic, and and we have to support and corroborate our decisions with as much certainty as we possibly can. But, you know, to that point, not to sound cliche, there is a ton of uncertainty and in, in this world that we're in. And that's the point I think is important that, you know, probably isn't in the details of either of these guidance documents, at least not that I've uncovered yet, is that risk is a total product lifecycle process. It's not a one and done sort of thing. This is something that you know, as Mike mentioned, doing a webinar here in a few weeks for Greenlight Guru on the topic of post market surveillance. Uh, post market surveillance is is all about risk management as well. You know, now you've got your product in the market at point of use. You'll learn stuff. You know, maybe some of those assumptions, those details that that you assessed while the product was still in development, maybe they were they were spot on, maybe they weren't. And either way, the whole idea of risk is it's a continuum. And it needs to be something that is living as long as that product is in existence. So I think that's really important. Again, I don't know that all those those nuances and that, those details were provided in these guidance documents, but I want people to, to remember that risk is not just something you do during the development to support some sort of regulatory submission. This is, you know, frankly, it's our responsibility as med device professionals to make sure that we're addressing throughout the total product lifecycle. All right, so uh, Mike, I sound like I felt like I might have been on a soapbox there at the end. So, so um, next time, just kick it off. So <laughs> no, I could end. I could not I could not agree with you more. All right, well, folks, once again, I I want to thank my good friend and um, contributor on today's uh, episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews, Vascular Sciences. Uh, he, he's a wealth of knowledge on I'll I'll say all things regulatory. I, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, you know, he he reads guidances for fun. Uh, I'm sure the moment that these came out, he was he was uh, he had new reading material for for his evening wind down. But he, seriously, he he uh, studies this information not because you don't have to, but he keeps his finger on the pulse from both industry and from a regulatory perspective. If you have any questions, comments about this or any other guidance document or, or regulation, he's the guy to talk to. So reach out to him. You can find him. Uh, I'll connect you with him personally if you want, or you can find him on LinkedIn. Pretty easy guy to find. He's he's well published across a number of different um, publications in our industry. So thank you again, Mike, for for talking about the consideration of uncertainty and making risk or benefit risk determinations. Folks, as always, this is uh, your host, founder, of VP of Quality and Regulatory, John Spear, and um, you know we're here to help as well, Greenlight Guru. So if you'd like to learn more about the Greenlight Guru EQMS software platform, as I mentioned earlier, just go to www.greenlight.guru and we'd be happy to have a conversation with you about how we might be able to help you with your quality management system needs, including addressing risks throughout the total product lifecycle. Thank you.